it's, uh, it's just, it's so easy right now to see and to witness that God's people, I'm not even talking about unchristians or the irreligious, but that God's people can and do divide. We can and we do divide. I mean, we talk about all kinds of Jesus math here at Collective in the church, right? Where you want to multiply. There's tons of multiplication we want to do. We want our groups to multiply and disciples to multiply and churches to multiply for his glory and for his fame. We talk a lot about God, that we want God by the power of his Holy Spirit to add converts, to add disciples, to add baptisms. And we're, we, we as a church understand that the life of a church has subtraction. People go and people move and people transfer. But, but the equation of division amongst Christians is sorrowful. See, when Christians divorce, or when a Christian home is broken, or when a church splits. Anybody ever been part of a church split? Or a church split? Yeah, that is, that is despairing stuff. That is some ugly, ugly stuff. Now, let me ask you as Christians here today, um, have you ever, or can you think of a time where you have divided with somebody, maybe like Lorenzo was just saying, over political issues? Have you divided with somebody over preference? Have you divided with somebody, another Christian, over trivial things? Or can you just remember a time where you've divided over another Christian because um, actually it was worth dividing over? Like it was something legit. We had to part ways. Um, in, in preparing this talk, I just had the stupidest thought, so bear with me. But I just kept thinking about how the church and how the Christian community is a lot like the rules to fight club. Anybody know the rules to fight club? Anybody remember them? What's rule number one? Don't talk about Fight Club. What's rule number two? Don't talk about Fight Club. But then if you keep going down, I'm so happy this church knows the rules to Fight Club. Afterwards, we're getting it on in the kids' room. It's going to be awesome. But like rule number eight, which I thought applied, rule number eight applies, and it's my favorite, it applies to every Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-centered church. And here it is. If this is your first time at Fight Club, what? You have to fight. Now, don't, I don't want to freak you out. We're not going to brawl. <laughs> if you haven't seen Fight Club or read you know, Chuck Palahniuk's book, don't worry. Again, we're not going to make you fight. But for those, again, who are um, unchristian, or again, this is your first time here or whatever, this probably doesn't, probably doesn't shock you that Christians can and do fight. We disagree. We disagree about a lot of things. It is to be expected, like Fight Club rule number eight. It's to be expected. Now, the only way Christians here right now, and maybe you're thinking, no, I don't fight. If you haven't fought yet with another Christian, it's for two reasons. You just became a Christian six minutes ago, and even then I'd be kind of like, oh, you haven't fought with somebody yet? So either that or, and to be honest, maybe you left or somebody else left before things got real. Like maybe just not a, a split. And I would, I put this, and I, I dare even say that if you aren't getting into it with other Christians from time to time, that may be because you are on the fringe and not in a discipleship group or not in discipleship or not in community with one another, or not serving one another. So fights, contention, disagreements, arguments, frustrations, animosity, controversy, and division are a sad reality within the confines of every 
church, period, period. And I hate, hate, hate that I have to say it, but this is the great unavoidable reality of what happens when you take imperfect people, of who I am chief, you take imperfect people, and when you take two imperfect things, like a positive and a negative thing on a car battery, I think sparks fly. I've never done the whole car battery thing, but I think that's what happens. Um, and then you take imperfect people, and you have an imperfection, and then it morphs into an imperfect scenario. All of that becomes a sharp, sharp disagreement. That's what it becomes. See, we as collective church, I just want to say this, we as collective church are outrageously imperfect. We have so many flaws. I mean, it's too many to count. This church, if you do not know this, this church will let you down. This church will let you down at some point, if we haven't already. I am going to let you down. I'm going to lay down. Forgive me for doing this. I'm going to let you down at some point. If, I'm already, if I haven't already yet, or if I'm not currently letting you down. I've got to be letting down somebody in this room right now, thinking, yeah, he's letting me down. It's got to be happening right now with somebody. And we will continue as a community to disagree or dispute. Why? Because that's what it means to maintain a relationship. That's what it means to maintain a relationship, getting through that stuff. I'm pretty sure that's what the word relationship means in Latin, right? Like close people who fight. I don't know know if it does, but it would have been awesome if it does. I don't know if it does. I made it up, but who knows? So this is the unavoidable as imperfect beings. If this is the unavoidable as imperfect beings, then what we need as a community and a small little dinky community here on the west side, what we need is to then be prepared. We need to be prepared here on the west side. We need to discover how to fight or how to disagree Oh, how to recover as well as possible. But more than anything, how to, as the letter to the Ephesians, uh, the Ephesian church in the New Testament says this, make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort. And if we don't make that effort, I am not concerned about us dying. I am not concerned. I, am far, I have a far greater fear of us living but then possessing a life of shallow existence and forgery, a false self or a false community. That freaks me out far more than us shutting our doors. We are to make every effort to keep the unity. So Acts 15. Like I said, we're going to finish it tonight. Acts 15 is this total fight club. And tonight's verses are dramatic, and there are tons of drama. That's what happens in tonight's verses. But it's with, the drama is with, one of the most surprising duos in all of the Bible. So tonight is a blind side to our Acts narrative. Let's read it. Verse 36 in chapter 15 should be on the screens. Let's rock and roll. Here we go. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So for those of you who care, they want to head out on their second missionary journey. Maybe some of you remember the first one. Paul was stoned, remember? With rocks. Paul got, you know, Paul was hurt with rocks. So Paul got hurt. And remember, there was a whole like, uh, you know, let's worship Paul and Barnabas, Jupiter and all that. Do you guys remember that? So this is the genesis of the second trip. Everybody with me? Verse 37. So Paul's like, or Paul's like, let's go. And now 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. And this is the Mark who wrote the gospel. So they want to take him John called Mark. But Paul 
thought not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And, here it is, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. The dynamic duo split up. I don't know, but we hate this stuff, don't we? It's like, no, you have to be, yeah. Like when the white stripes break up, no. Or Sonny and Cher, oh, we find out that Paul and John Lennon like hated each other. It's like, it hurts our heart. We hate this type of stuff. And John Mark here is their Yoko, right? John Mark here is their Yoko in this moment. <laughs> this multiple year relationship shattered. And it's over something that seems so trivial. It's over something that seems so small. Now to really seize this, We've got to understand that this sharp disagreement is not a mild gentleman's disagreement. They don't shake hands and go, good good day to you. That's not what's happening here. This was an intense and passionate conflict. Who's here has had an intense and passionate conversation? Come on now, all of you. This is Los Angeles. This is how we talk normally, right? (laughs) Even our whisper is a shout, right? We get so passionate over like defending the Queen Bee Beyonce. We get so passionate over Star Wars theories. We get so passionate over like taco meat. We are passionate, controversial people. That is Los Angeles. That is who we are. And it's more of us because people who are like as driven as we are leave the home base of the Midwest or the South or whatever, and they flee to the coastlands and we all colmagate. That's a word, right? Whatever. We all get together. Here, and we're like, passion, yes. Anyway. So one commentator regarding Paul and Barnabas used the words, this is the words he used. These two men, church founding leaders, Paul, one of the most important movement leaders ever. He said, these two men men are pig-brained and shameful. Pig-brained and shameful. So I want us to get the, the, the word sharp disagreement. In its original meaning, and I do... I did look this one up, so I'm with you. I'm not making this up. In its original meaning of the text, it's translated into violence. They have a violent action or emotion. A violent action or emotion. When this word is used in the medical context, it can mean convulsion. It means a high, red-faced fever. That is what's happening with these two men. Now, I doubt that they were like Patrick Swayze roundhouse kicking each other in the face. I doubt that. I don't think there's physical violence, but it is far heavy and far heavier than a simple, quiet conversation. And this sharp disagreement leads to heavy division, disunity with church leaders, disagreement amongst Christians about how things are to be done. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Both Paul and Barnabas, they're... They're both right. They're both kind of right. I think we can see both sides of their reasoning. So on one side, we have Paul, the opposition. Paul, the opposition. He doesn't want John Mark to go because only a few chapters ago, John Mark was young, immature, and unreliable. And when things got heated up, he peaced out. He's like, I'm out of here. So Paul interprets that as what? Abandonment. You left me, dude. I'm not taking that chance again. It makes sense. So Paul wants missionaries who are stable, especially because he wants to go to Lystra again, where he got stoned and dragged out of the city and left as dead. I need stable men with me, Paul's thinking. So I totally get Paul's side. 
Okay? I think we all probably do. But then we have Barnabas the optimist. Barnabas the optimist. Barnabas is related, and he is cousins with John Mark. He is cousins. And I know we all internally have this weird obligation to helping our cousins out, don't we? Don't we feel it? i got to try to get my cousin a job or whatever it is. We feel that with our cousins. Barnabas knows that John Mark has grown leaps and bounds, and other portions of the New Testament, Testament actually confirm that he has. So Barnabas get this lean towards giving him grace. Paul, chillax, bro. He's growing. He's grown. Help him. Teach him. Mentor him. If you remember or know this, when Paul was rejected by everybody, including Peter and the other disciples, who gave Paul grace in that moment? Anybody remember? Barnabas. Barnabas did. So Paul owes Barnabas more than any other human being his life, everything, his relationships, because of the very thing Barnabas now wants to do to who? John Mark. The same thing he did for Paul, he now wants to do for John Mark. So our judgment goes with Paul, but our affections go with Barnabas. Here's the thing, though. We are not meant, or should we take sides? We are not meant, nor should we take sides. We're meant to take note. We're meant to take warning as Christians and as Jesus followers here tonight. Because there is immense, strong application with these verses. In light of everything, our nation's current divide, the church's growing division, our city's divide, our heart's own chasm, I think the warning and the enlightenment with these verses that what they offer could prove helpful helpful for us as we discern, as we engage, as some of us probably need to disarm with current or future sharp disagreements. So this way we're not called pig-headed like Paul was or Barnabas. So first note, first inspection I just want to throw out there. This is what I want to put out there. I want everybody to get this. Not all disagreements or all debates or all differences are bad. Okay? They're not all bad. What happens here in Acts chapter 15 between Paul and Barnabas is an absolute failure. That's bad. That is a failure. But Christians are permitted to disagree so long as the results and responses to those disagreements do not end in sin. Do not end in sin. Collective Church, I want us to see that our, um, our differences are part of the mystery of our unity. That's what I want for us. Real biblical, uh, gospel, Christian unity, the kind that we make an effort for that I was saying, does not exist in uniformity. No, no, no. I don't want everybody wearing the same t-shirt, same sneakers, that's creepy stuff. No, 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 we ain't doing that type of stuff. That's not what we want here, okay? There's room for disagreements. We wanna make room for different understandings. Our legitimate differences are rooted, we believe, so deeply in the same God. So with that, we need maturing in our conversations. We need maturing in our perspective of disagreements, especially within the church, within your discipleship groups, whatever. Okay? We need maturing of a perspective for our worldview to view something differently, to understand that to view something differently can still mean we're viewing the same thing. Okay? Differences are a grace of God. 
So again, it's more about then how we disagree. How are we to disagree? We care far more about how you disagree versus over what you're disagreeing upon. So how we interact, even though may our flesh maybe wants to like karate chop somebody's teeth, how we interact is very important. So if I could pose right now, just for the next few moments, a few guardrails, if you will. It's not a, really a list of anything. I just want to bring up some guardrails that I think would do us good to apply to those moments where you're just like, dude, I just want to sucker punch this guy. Or I want to hit him behind with this like a stick or whatever it could possibly be. Okay, so here are some guardrails that I think will be, be sort of like making the effort of maintaining peace and unity. Just, if you want to write them down, if not, whatever, I don't care. So here it is. Take your opponent's views in their entirety, not selectively. I want us to be a church that listens to the entire case, to the entire point, or to the entire moment. I don't know about you, but like the person like I dispute the most with is Lorenzo. And that's good. But most of the time, because my brain works like a rabbit running through the woods, Lorenzo will say two words and I'm like, oh no, you're wrong. He's like, let me finish. So it's just, I don't, I listen selectively. I have selective hearing, selective memory, selective everything. We need to listen to the entirety, to the entirety. Let's make sure we know what we are disagreeing with, okay? Another guardrail. I think this is so helpful, and this is helpful for me too, is respect and represent your opponent's position in its strongest form. Respect and represent your opponent's position in its strongest form. This is what you should want, and this is what I should want. If you're in a disagreement with somebody, you should want them to hear the words or say back to you, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's what we should want to hear. We shouldn't be like, well, your stupid opinion means this. No, no, we should respect it and represent it as fair and as strong as possible. A couple more, then we'll move on. Um, This is huge. Please, as Christians, can we win the person and not the argument? Can we try to win the person and not the argument? This comes down to motives. This comes down to motives. If you're trying to win the argument, which I'm guilty of, but if you're trying to win the argument and not the relationship, you've already failed. I've already failed. Because my entire point of talking with you is just to, just to prove a point and go, ha, that I've already lost the person. And lastly, this should go without saying, but more often than not, this is last resort. Um, it's unceasing prayer. It's unceasing prayer. And let me read this to you. An old British clergyman, John Newton words, which will serve us well. He wrote this little letter called A Letter on Controversy, where he says this. Before you write a word against your opponent and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer for the Lord's teaching and blessing. So as you're fighting with somebody, you're commending to God Almighty blessings on this person. Boy, I, I I, I, I don't do that. Prayer always mixes and stirs up love for whoever we are disagreeing with. So friends, we have an opportunity with each and every discomfort that surfaces, and it's the opportunity for growth. We so badly want, you guys want us, want our church to grow. We want our church to mature. We want our church to bear fruit. And engagement with the uncomfortable like weaving and working in and out of sharp arguments or sharp disagreements will stretch us, stretch us in ways that familiarity and security cannot. 
So we want growth, we want transformation, we want bearing fruit. And that does and can and will happen in our failures and in each other's failures. We are to grow from Paul and Barnabas' failures. I hope, we're, I hope we see the, the raw grittiness of Scripture, of the Bible, that Luke, the author of Acts, actually includes this. If he didn't, we wouldn't have a holistic mindset of knowing and loving and living for Jesus. Luke is not whitewashing, sugarcoating, high-glossing, anything, anything of what it means to live in harmony. Harmony only comes by way of effort. If this church you've walked in is harmonious, and we hope we are, and we're unified, that's because you guys have made an incredible effort. Because you guys have. You want to know why people stick around at this church, what we hear the most? They felt unity. They felt community. They felt loved. And if that's not the case for some of you here, we're, we're sorry about that. We want you to feel that. But we've heard here and time and time again, it's because people like you for months upon months upon months have made an effort to make this place feel like home. Where was I? Okay, I got off track. Now, I believe Paul actually dresses maintaining unity. And I think this is so huge for us. I think Paul actually dresses it. I'm going to keep saying maintaining. I think Paul gets into it. And Paul, which is funny, didn't maintain unity. And many commentators believe in these next set of verses that Paul, when he wrote them, hung his head low in disappointment that he actually can write these things later but did not apply these things to the situation with Barnabas. So I want us to listen to Paul and what it means to live for and work and serve and be together. This is our aim. So let me put the scriptures up. And as we're reading these scriptures, I want us to ask ourselves, do these words apply to me? These are Paul's words. Do these words describe me? Okay? Allow me to read them to you. So what he's saying about how we're supposed to be together, maintaining unity, is like this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, so that family vibe. Outdo one another in showing honor. What would this church be like if we're all just trying to outdo one another in showing honor? Got you. No, I got you. Oh, I got you. Okay? Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek how to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Wasn't Lorenzo just talking about them? Never be wise in your own sight. We pray no one for evil, for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, to the, contra to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And for by doing so, you will hear burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but be overcome evil with good. If you're struggling to be half of this or 25% of this or 1% of this, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. A massive takeaway from these verses with Paul and Barnabas is to find comfort. Knowing Paul and Barnabas struggled, friends, that they too walked with limps, that these massive spiritual giants possessed weaknesses and were desperate, should give us 
the license and the move and, and, and the movement and the understanding to be able to go, I too am weak. I I gotta be, I am the most desperate man in this room. I'm insecure. I'm prone to controversy. I'm a mad, mad people pleaser, unbelievable people pleaser. I I watch The Bachelor. God help me, I'm weak, okay? <laughs> I'm a slow reader. I can't do small division. I'm lacking in self-control. I have a short temper with my children, and I'm utterly broken and in massive need of a hero and of a savior. The great and brilliant, impactful theologian from centuries ago named Martin Luther said of himself, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns and clearing wild forest. One of my all-time favorite philosophers and Christian writers, G.K. Chesterton, right, RJ? You know, dude, G.K., dude. When asked, what is wrong with this world, you know what he responded with? No, no, I am. What is wrong with this world? I am. And we can only say that there's comfort with reading these verses, not in Paul and Barnabas' failure, but in the redemption. But in the redemption. While God did not create this sharp disagreement, he does beautifully and sovereignly salvage it. Look at verse 39. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. BT dubs, this is the last glimpse of Barnabas we have in Acts. So one of the most noblest figures in all of the New Testament, gone. But Silas, or excuse me, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of, uh, the, grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then through this, carry on just a little bit more, Paul even picks up another intern. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Jump to verse 5 and check out what happens. So the, jur- the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. More on Timothy in a later date, but that's amazing. Here's the thing. They both were wildly successful in their ministry efforts. Do we realize that they just doubled? Two teams just doubled? Oh, both and before and after, they are wildly successful, both before and after that sharp disagreement. God continued, God continues to use Paul and Barnabas. By golly, friends, aren't we grateful that God is not as fussy as we are? Right? Holy smokes. My daughter the other day walked into a door jam and she started screaming in the hallway, this is the end! She just kept screaming it over and over. She just walked like in a door jam. I'm so glad that God does not have my daughter's limited perspective. God is not easily shocked or surprised by any of our imperfections. We don't do something stupid and God's like, oh, mama. That's not what happens. God doesn't even stop using people because of their flaws or their character. We are far more dismissive and condemning of church leaders and people's weaknesses than God ever is. If you read the Bible... If you spend some time searching through the Bible and reading and understanding, you know what you will find over and over and over and over and over? You will find man's failure 
on every page. You'll find woman's failure on every page. But do you know what you'll find right after that? God's redemption. Do you know that? Do we live like that? Do you believe this? And not in just some generic way. I don't want these talks to be just so broad where it's like, oh, I can get behind something. Do we believe that for your, do you believe that for your exact context that God's gonna take this heap of garbage and do something glorious with it? I, I struggle at times to believe that from circumstance to circumstance. How about this? Let me ask a couple questions. Maybe we're convinced that God is at work. No, I believe it. God is at work but he's at work in their situation. No, God's only at work in their situation. God's at work in their situation. But mine? No. Maybe we're so concerned about what God might be doing over there with her, with him, in that church, with that team, with that people group, that we actually miss what he is doing in our context, in this very moment, in my conflict. I'm not sure about you, but I want to know this, I need this in my life. I need this. That God is weaving something good from torn and tattered yarn. That's the, that's the hope of these verses. The whole reason Luke wrote, this, wrote that in is like, don't look at a bunch of dorks that Paul and Barnabas are. Look at how God is a hero. These are the hope of these verses. We've got nothing else Christians to cling to. Those here who aren't Christians, I, I don't know what you cling to. So maybe you're thinking right now, as you hear all of this, Casey, it's, it's sort of small, right? This is very shallow, something very easy or permissive with Paul and Barnabas. It's really, really small. You know what I'd say to that? Exactly. Exactly. Jesus Christ salvages even specks and the smallest and the most insignificant shallow of things. It's so comforting to know that if God cares for the small, he definitely cares for the big. And just, you know, to understand, everything is small to God. So just, that's a whole mindset. It's one of the most overly misquoted verses of all time has got to be Romans 8.28. If you're here, you're not even a Christian, you probably too know this verse, okay? I wouldn't be surprised if you too have heard it before. Now, this is the correct one. You know what the misquote is all the time? This is what I was told my entire life. Here's what I've been told. All things work together for good. Who's been told that their entire life? Casey, son, buck up. All things work together for good. God helps those who help themselves. All things work together for good? What? This verse, in its full context, sheds beautiful light on really what's being said. Let me read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Perhaps more than any other promise in the Bible, this verse has helped people trust God. I don't know if there's any other problem. This verse is pretty in-depth. Not because it says God will take bad things away. Not because it says bad things are good things. No, no, God, God hates all this bad stuff. God hates these failures and sharp disagreements. It's because people can hold fast to the all things. 
small to big, and believe the word of God that this too, this horrible, terrible, haunting, all the way to seemingly pointless, sharp disagreements in the hands of God can be redeemed, can be salvaged. Good coming from bad, good, just think about that. Good coming from bad, that's gotta be a natural pol- apologetic or a defense of the faith in and of itself because we know that good just doesn't come from bad. When has order ever come from chaos? But with God, but for those who value and delight and cherish and admire and treasure and savior and love God, though they may forget and not always feel it, but we can and do have the concrete hope that ever since the cross of Jesus, God has transmuted hardships and failures into holiness and honor and beauty. I always just want to remember in the muck and mire of I every days that God turned a crucifixion into resurrection. (sighs) That is our insurance. That is our assurance. And people who have that kind of assurance then can look out on all situations and realize all these bad situations, everything that comes against me is all in vain. I want to read this quote to you. For those who have this assurance, pay attention. A good man may look down upon the whole army of worldly afflictions under his feet with a slight and disregard and consider himself and joy therein that great they are and however numerous, let them all join their forces together against him and put on the most rueful and dreadful habits, forms and appearances and spend all their strength, vigor and violence with endeavors uh, to do to him any real hurt or mischief and it is all in vain. Basically says, whatever you want to throw at me is in vain because I have the assurance that whatever this is, like I said, all this garbage will become glory. This is a promise to all of those who answer the call of Jesus saying, follow me. If, this, if you're hearing this and you're not a Christian, that call is extended to you, even in this moment. So what I'd like to do now now is is I'd like to respond. I want us as a church to respond at a gathering. And what's beautiful about our gatherings and response time is it's done in unity. So as we talk about trying to maintain the unity, now is a very expressible, uh, expressed, physical, tangible, palpable way where we can be unified. And one of the ways to do that is singing together. It's crazy. There's like over 400 commands to sing in the Bible. And it says like, you know, don't kill, like, 14 times or whatever. It's just insane. It's like sing together, sing together. Why? Because for a few moments, the young and the old and the different cultures and races and understanding come together. They push everything outside and we sing the same words with the same voice, with the same melody. And we are, we get to feel and get to know and get to be that one body. So singing is important. That's how we do it each and every week. You can sing in your chair, you can stand, you can raise your arms, you can come to the carpet. Second thing, another thing, another effort of unity that we will make tonight is we have people up against that wall and people are gonna be up against that wall with lanyards who want to pray with and for and over you. Again, unity. So if anything that was said tonight were you going, oh no, I'm in a total beef right now with somebody, I'm mad about this, I'm upset, upset about this, we invite you then to take it to these amazing people in our church who want to pray over you. And lastly, 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 
one of the most important things we do whenever we gather together. This is one of the most important things is communion. Right here on my right and my left. Common union, communion. You get it, you're with me. Everybody right? But do not hear me now. Please do not take, Christians, this is for you. Do not take these elements, these double stack cups. If you and another member of this church are at odds with one another, don't do it. First, work it out. To eat of this cup together in unity is telling everybody as you walk up here and proclaiming to everybody here that you are making an effort to maintain unity by heralding the only thing you have in common. And you know what that is? The cross of Jesus Christ. The life and the death of Jesus Christ. So make sure, I don't care if you have to crawl over people, get to people, or walk next to people to make sure it's right. If you have to take somebody outside and have a conversation, do that tonight before you come up here and you tell the whole world, no, I'm good. Now you come up here and you make sure that you are actually good in Jesus with one another in unity. Amen? Let's do that. Let's pray.